Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. I wonder, how do you feel about evangelism? Do you have a heart for the lost? I know that for me, sharing my faith is pretty challenging, not because of a lack of commitment or a lack of knowledge, but because my culture makes it difficult. And that stinks because I want to be faithful to Jesus who commissioned us to make disciples of all nations. I want to do that, but many times I'm just not sure how. Today, we begin a brand new class on evangelism that is going to cover what evangelism isn't, what evangelism is, and how we can get better at it. Our teacher is Joshua Anderson of Rogers, Arkansas, who recently came back from Japan after serving there as a missionary for two years. Anderson has a Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of Arkansas and a Master's in Theology from Fuller Theological Seminary and a second Master's in Philosophy from Talbot at Biola University. He's an expert on apologetics and Christian philosophy and has varying degrees of proficiency in uh, a number of different languages, including Hebrew, Greek, Latin, Spanish, and of course, Japanese. Not only is he well-educated and super intelligent, but he has the gift of explaining topics in a way that is easy to understand. I think you're really going to enjoy this. I certainly did. This class totally shifted my paradigm on how I think about and carry out evangelism, and it gave me hope and excitement about the subject again, and I think it will really help you as well. I'm not sure how many episodes this is going to break out into, maybe four or five or six, somewhere somewhere in there, uh, but I think this is really just such an important topic, and Anderson just does such a great job of deconstructing the, the bad ways that we Christians <laughs> sometimes do evangelism and constructing in their place good ways, biblical ways, spirit-driven ways, where we can have conversations with people in our lives and do it in an authentic and natural way that can bear fruit over time rather than the salesman approach of going up to strangers. So uh, I'm really excited about this. Here now is episode 315, Why We Hate Evangelism and Why We Aren't Doing It with Joshua Anderson. I'm sure probably some more people will be arriving soon, but uh, we want to be somewhat punctual here. Just wanted to offer some preliminary remarks about uh, my friend Josh. We were trying to figure out when we met each other. We know it was in Seattle <laughs> at a One God conference in... Uh, 2008, 2009, 2007, 2000 something. It was in in this millennium, and uh, so we met there. And uh, then uh, the next year, that conference was a roving conference, so it moved from city to city. So the next year, they had it in L.A., and that's where Josh was living at the time, going to school. And so we uh, uh, got to meet up there and saw his apartment, met his wife, and. Uh, he didn't have any kids yet. He was in school at Fuller, right? Or, yeah, were you at Biola? I think you were thinking about going to Biola. He's uh, somebody I've known for a long time, and I, and, uh, I spoke to him this past summer uh, after he, he got back from this uh, missionary time in Japan about coming to family camp and uh, sharing some info about what he learned and evangelism at family camp, and it, it didn't work out, and he, I think, somewhat just like out of politeness said, well, maybe in the fall, and uh, I held him to it, <laughs> so here he is in the fall, and uh, he's, he's got a lot to, uh, to share with us, and he's got a lot of experience, and I did want to mention to you that he has faced significant hardship <laughs> this week in trying to get here. Um, his life was, was put in uh, serious danger Sunday night. Um, and uh, he tells me he's never had a tornado before. He lives in Arkansas, but there was a mile-wide tornado that came over his house. He was in the bathroom, had the kids in the tub with a mattress over them, and he's on his face before the Lord, crying out for his, his life. You know, the house is shaking, and there's green lightning everywhere, and Josh was telling me that it's the first time he's, he's ever been in real imminent danger that, like, he, he could die at any moment. <laughs> 
And uh, so that, that was unusual because you, you've never had one of those where you live. You know, his trampoline got shot two houses over and, and, and sent into the fence of a neighbor and some of the houses nearby, all their shingles were ripped off and many trees throughout his whole town are just torn out by the roots and everything is destroyed and his house is okay. Uh, so praise God for that. And uh, then the next day, which would be Monday, he got called in for jury duty. And he had set aside, he had set aside some time to prepare slides for us. But he got called in Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, 8 to 5 on a rape case. And Thursday. And Thursday. <laughs> so, uh, and, and he, you know, he's thinking, okay, there's 200 people here. That, you know, they're sure they're not going to pick me. I've got a good excuse. And they wouldn't let him out of it. He said, work is no excuse. You got you to do this. And so he, he sat through grueling testimony day after day of, of this guy who they did find guilty and uh, sentenced to 50 years for his crime. So, I mean, what a week, huh? From tornadoes to uh, jury duty, and then um, somehow he finally got here. So uh, really thankful to have Josh here. Come on up, Josh. And he's going to share with us about... Announcing the gospel. So, thank you, Sean. Thank you so much, Sean. Thank you uh, for inviting me. Yeah. So, what a week, huh? <laughs> but praise God, I, here I am. <laughs> I made it. It was crazy as the wind. I've never heard wind like this, and our glass was all shaking up in the top of it. It was like. <sighs> I was, it was crazy, and our whole house is shaking, and yeah, so um, that was quite an experience, or these sort of things get stripped back, and then you realize suddenly how vulnerable we actually all really are, aren't we? <laughs> At every single moment of our life, I am literally one heartbeat away from it, right? And finally, you get in this crisis situation where you're confronted with the reality of it and all the illusion is stripped away and you realize it is all fragile and vulnerable and I am so close to my Lord at any moment and guess what? So is everybody else. <laughs> so is everybody else and that's part of the reason of why we're here, right? Announcing the gospel of the kingdom. Announcing the gospel of the kingdom. So I'll just give you a little bit more personal background story so you kind of know who this guy is up here talking to you. <laughs> yeah, my name's Josh. I was, I was raised in an awesome Christian family. My parents love, love the Lord. All my siblings love the Lord, walk, walk with him to this day. And uh, for whatever reason, ever since I was really little, I just have this burning passion for people who do not know about God. So... Who remembers Blockbuster Video? <laughs> Remember Blockbuster? God, I miss Blockbuster Video. Where you could go in there and see them all, you know, and it didn't matter what movie you wanted to pick. When you went up to there, the little video wasn't behind it. Remember? <laughs> and then I guess you can't rent that one tonight, right? Well, I remember being in Blockbuster Video at fifth grade with my friend, and I remember asking him, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe like God, God raised him from the dead? And, and all this story's true? And then he was like, what? <laughs> he was like, I just wanted to rent Monty Python and the Holy Grail tonight. <laughs> and right there in the middle of Blockbuster Video, I was like, so distraught. No way. You don't know the Lord? Are you serious? We have to pray right now. <laughs> so I'm like, get, I'm like get, we need to get on our knees right here in the comedy section of Blockbuster Video and we're going to pray for you to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior right now before we can do anything else. And so I wanted to pray for him. And you know what he said? No. <laughs> he said, I don't want to. I just want, and he just kind of like awkwardly shifted on to go look for more movies. And do you know what I did? I started actually weeping. I started weeping for my friend in the middle of the Blockbuster Video Comedy Aisle. <laughs> and it's a little bit funny. <laughs> But, yeah, I was that forceful. And um, 
I did learn some more tack, <laughs> and I did learn uh, a little bit more nuance, <laughs> uh, which we'll be sharing with you. But for whatever reason, that's always kind of been in there. That's always been in there. And so I fast forward, bunch of future, Sean, meeting conferences, went to seminary a couple times or whatever. But we came to a point where we began to feel pretty strongly that the Lord was calling us to do mission work in Japan. We felt like he was leading us to go. But I really struggled with it, to be honest. Um, specifically, I struggled with my motivations. Why do I want to go to Japan? Why do I really want to do this? Is it because, you know, I think it would be an exciting adventure? Because I kind of do. Do I want to go because I just love Japanese culture and I, I'm interested in it? And I, I do. Also, what about the fact that my wife, who was adopted, just recently discovered her birth family on accident, which is another crazy long story, asked me in the break. And it turns out her birth mom has lived in Japan the last 26 years. Is that part of my motivation here? So about wanting to go be a missionary in Japan now? Now, we were already thinking about missions before we found them, but we were actually originally thinking China. So why are we feeling now Japan? So if you were to put me, I was just on jury duty for three days, right? If you were to put my motivations on trial, <laughs> and you're stacking up all the evidence of why, Josh, do you really want to do this, uh, it's all kind of stacking against, you know, like the pyramid of, does he really love the Japanese people? Is he really burning with a passion that the Lord's name would be known there? Or is it all these other motives? And I couldn't say. I was struggling with it, right? I was struggling with it. But the truth is, I actually don't need some big calling. I don't need some big pure motivation, because we already have a calling to go, right? It's the Great Commission, which we're going to read here in a minute. You knew we were going to read it today, right? <laughs> I already have a great calling to go. I don't need the skies to open up and for God himself to speak and tell me, to, tell me go to Japan. He already said, go to all the nations, <laughs> right? He told us to do it. He commanded us to do it. But what I was struggling with was my motivation. About, about me, and I was becoming so self-obsessed in it. And you know what finally broke it for me? Was I was reading the passage where Jesus said, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Pray that he would raise up workers to be sent into the fields, right? And I was reading right before that section, right before it said, Jesus saw the crowds. And he what? He had compassion on them. Jesus saw all the people of the crowds. He's the one who has the compassionate heart for them. He says he looks at them as like lost sheep. At one point, he looks at the Israelites and he says, like, like a hen, like a mother hen, I was wanting to sweep you up under my wings and protect you. Jesus is the one who has compassion on the crowds, my job is to just pray to the Lord of the harvest. It's his harvest. It's his world. It's his creation. It's, these are his people. And it's his compassion that he has for it. And you know what the book of Isaiah says? It says the zeal of the Lord will accomplish it. It says, uh, the Old Testament says that God will fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord, just like the waters cover the sea. You know how the waters cover the sea? Water's just all over the sea, <laughs> right? Waters and the sea, it's all mixed up. It's all there. You're not going to any place on the sea that's not going to be covered with the waters. And God promises that he will fill this entire earth with the knowledge of the Lord, just like the waters cover the sea. And he said the zeal of the Lord, he will do it. And Jesus is the one who looks out with the compassion. And he's the one. It is his mission to save the world. My particular motivations, good or bad, my laziness or not, my any, any of that stuff is completely irrelevant. He's the one who's doing it. He's the one who's saving the world. And so what he taught me through this whole missionary process is I realized, even before I went, that it didn't actually matter that I go there or I go 
and I stay here because I realize the Lord is going to be asking me the same question no matter where I am. It's here. Here. How am I loving those in my sphere of influence? How am I preaching the good word, announcing the kingdom to them, living with kingdom life, walking by the fruit of the Spirit to those who I have personal contact in my network of my life here. Whether here is in Arkansas or whether I just geographically get moved over to Japan and here happens to be in another country now. He's going to ask me the same question. How are you loving those around you in your sphere of influence? It's the geography bit isn't the issue. Right? But what, what, what we do sometimes, I think, is we avoid that here by coming up with fantasy ideas of this beautiful, glorious mission there, right? Where Jesus said, if you're going to be my followers, every day you have to pick up your cross and follow me. And what happens is, in, is Jesus' cross, when you pick it up, is it's going to be right here in your life, your daily life, the things going on in your network, your boss, right? your friends, your family members. And Jesus is going to say, pick up this cross. And you say, this one, Lord? This dirty, stinky cross? This, ah, this one? Look, Lord, look at that glorious cross over in the corner, right? <laughs> oh, Lord, that cross would look good on me, right? <laughs> I want to wear that one. I want to go over there to this far land and, and to, we get all these fantasies. And then you realize, no, Jesus wants you to carry this cross. <laughs> this one right here. What? That friend whose drug addiction keeps hurting me again and again and again? What, this family member? This, this cross? This one here? These people, Lord? <laughs> yes. These people, you know why? Because Jesus is already down in the mud, in the dirt, serving, and he's asking you, come yoke with me. Yoke with me, I'm here. I'm already working in your life. And in all the people of your life, he's going before you, and he's asking you to yoke up and join in with his, his mission based on his compassion for his people. And our great, awesome joy is to join them. Is to join them. It's incredible. So, um, what I want to do in our time today is I want to be able to reframe for you some of the things that got reframed for me around evangelism. But what it, what it really is, what it really looks like, and what it's not, <laughs> what it doesn't look like, what works, and what really isn't very effectual, and it's just, it's not working, right? And I want to give you a framework, too, for understanding why we feel the way we do about evangelism, and frankly, why we're probably not doing it. <laughs> why is that happening? Why do we feel this way? I want to give you the framework so you understand it, have compassion and understanding about that, and then I'm going to give you tangible key things that you can be doing to be equipped. Because you're not going to do something unless you're just being, you just white knuckle it and you're like, I'm going to be faithful, dang it. And you get out there and you'll probably start messing everything up because you're trying. But if you feel equipped because you have skill and you have knowledge and you have tangible, um, I want to shy away from the word technique, but you know what I'm saying. You feel equipped, you'll be more confident in your engagements. You'll be more willing and ready to go out. So that's what we're going to do uh, today. So let me start with the bad news. <laughs> why we hate evangelism uh, and why we're not doing it. Uh, do you know, pastors, we just loved like awful, awful statistics. <laughs> We love to share, you know, very terrible polls. And you know that according to the new Barna poll, 47% uh, of millennials think that evangelism is wrong. It's, it's not just that 47% of them aren't doing it. They also think that, quote, it is wrong to share your beliefs with another person 
in the hopes that they one day share your, your beliefs too. Not just that they're not doing it, it's actually wrong to do it. 47%. Ah, that's crazy, right? So we all say like, no way, that's awful, right? And then we just blame the millennials and, and look at them, right? But, but isn't there a little bit in our hearts that also feels like there's something weird, something feels weird about this? In society, don't you feel a little bit awkward sometimes when you're trying to share your faith? Don't you feel like that guy who's just kind of doing the Jesus juke and out of nowhere you're like, um, yeah, this football game sure is great, but have you heard about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? And it just feels kind of weird. Don't you also feel a little bit of that 47% something going on in there? What is that? What is that? Because we know and this is the other part of the poll, is they knew that they were supposed to be sharing their faith, they said. And so do we, right? Because we have the Great Commission. Let's just read it together. Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. And in Matthew 28, I'll just read 16 through 20. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Famous passage, right? Our mandate. Turn with me also to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we'll start in verse 11. And the scripture says in 5.11, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God. And I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again. But we're giving you an opportunity to take pride in us. So that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us. Because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, verse 16, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God. God, who reconciled himself to us through Christ. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Not counting people's sins against them. And he committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. This text is huge, right? This is huge. Do you see what God's done? He was not counting the world's sins against them. He, through his son and through his son's death, he is reconciling and forgiving all the world, bringing them all unto himself, not counting all their sins against them. God's not mad at them and angry. He loves them so much that while we were sinners, it says, he would send his son. While we're still sinners, he would send his son to die. That in of itself is, is just in, insanely incredible, and you'll spend the rest of your life getting it into here, to believing it, <laughs> and feeling it as true, right? But look at the next movement. That in of itself is incredible, but then what does God do with that? He takes the football after he just completely scored this incredible touchdown, and then he gives it to us, <laughs> right? He's like, here, here, you take the ministry of reconciliation. He gives us, it says, the ministry of reconciliation, and it says he gives us the message 
of reconciliation. He gave it to us. And then he declares us and makes us ambassadors. Right? We know what ambassador is. Right? We come from one country. You're going over to another country. You're a delegated appointee to represent them, maybe giving terms of war or whatever, or peace, or negotiations. We are his official representatives who are the caretakers of that message that he's reconciled the world, and we persuade the world, be reconciled to God. That feels a little bit crazy, though. A little bit of me is like, Lord, why? Why did you give it to us? Why not give it to the angels, Lord? <laughs> give them the message of reconciliation. Let them fly over and preach it over all the earth and, and send them, or maybe your very special super saints. Give it to them, Lord, and give them miraculous powers to walk over the face of the earth and to heal and do these incredible miracles in front of everybody on national TV. And then they preach the message of reconciliation. But, but you just gave it to all of us? That's exactly what he did. He gave it to all of us. A little bit of our hearts, we just want to leave it to the professionals. You know, in Japan, part of picking up all the interesting bits of Japanese culture, which you'll hear more about as we keep going, but uh, one of the things in Japan is they have this culture of professionals, that a professional is the one who does something, and if you're a layman and a non-professional, it's out of your zone. So, for instance, like this guy would come to our house to fix something. Uh, I don't remember what he was actually fixing. It was like our tub or something. And I was asking him, like, oh, so how do you do it? And so if, and I'm thinking if it breaks again, or I just want to know, or I'm curious, you know, how is this, how, is this, how are you fixing this? And he just couldn't believe, like, what? what? Why would you want to know? I'm the professional who fixes it. I'm the handyman guy. It's just outside of your sphere, whatever. What? And that mindset of professionals do their professional thing, and it's not your job, that Culturally, that message has creeped into the church in Japan too, right? Because our churches, like it or not, oftentimes absorb elements of the wider culture, right? And that's the lens through which we start viewing the gospel in the world. So the Japanese church has a very serious problem with evangelism. Because they say, leave it to the professionals. So they're like, yeah, you missionaries, you guys came over here to do evangelism, so we'll let you do it. <laughs> Or pastors, we're the ones who's the professional pastors. That's your job. So the, but what does the Bible say? We all have been given the message and the ministry of reconciliation. The Bible didn't say when Jesus said the Great Commission, just only the professionals go and make disciples. It's the job of every single Christian, right? But... Sometimes don't we, not just Japan, but even us, don't we also subtly have that mindset? Sometimes? Leave it to the few people with the gift ministry of evangelism. Leave it to those few people who are the bringers, who really are good at just bringing, bringing people to the church. Or leave it to the church. Sometimes we just think, if I could just get people into the door of the church, that somehow... The church will have the ministry of, of, of reconciliation, and I don't have to actually do anything. <laughs> right? They'll just get it through osmosis without actually being preached. We have a little bit of this coming into us as well, right? But it has to be. There can't be any other way. It has to be that each one of us has the message, and we bring it to our sphere of influence to the people in our life. Because even if I'm, like, when I'm in Japan... There's like 36 million people there. If I started speaking for 30 minutes to each person and I just nonstop was preaching the gospel message for 30 minutes to the next person, I probably wouldn't finish before I die. <laughs> We're not going to reach them. You, right? I can't reach the people in your life. You're the one who has the... And if I did, they'd be like, who is this guy? I don't have any relationship to him. But you do have a relationship to them. You do. Who else is God going to use in their life? Who else does God have so involved in their life who they would trust a word from than you? Why are you waiting for God to send someone else into their life? God already has you. 
You're the one who goes to work with them. You're the one who, you know, they're in your family. They're your friends. They're your associates that you see. They're not, they're not the professionals. They're yours. So God gave the message to you. But we're just sitting on it sometimes. The great commission, literally, the last thing Jesus is saying as he's flying up into heaven, off of this earth, the last thing he's telling to us, it's sort of important, right? Is go make disciples, and we don't do it. That's crazy. The Great Commission has become the Great Omission. He told us to make disciples, and we're omitting the disciple part too, which we'll talk more about later. Instead, we're trying to make just Christians. He didn't say go into the world and make Christians. He, didn't, he said make disciples. He didn't say go and make people who believe the same things. He said make disciples. He didn't say get, oh, go and make churches and fill the churches. He said go and make disciples. Let me ask you, do you have any disciples? I'll tell you a story of um, a conference sort of like this where I was involved in a, in a ministry where we hired this guy to come as an evangelistic speaker uh, who had written a book and stuff to come and talk to us at a seminar, sort of like this. <laughs> and uh, we hired him. He came in. He got up. And he just told a story for maybe, I think it was like three minutes. And then he sat down. And that was it. Not the sort of guy you want to hire and buy a plane ticket to come to your conference, right? <laughs> but everybody was completely blown away by what he said. We were just like, what? Because all he, you know what he said? He got up there and he said, yeah, me and my wife, we retired. We uh, got an awesome ranch out in Texas. We got this incredible ranch land. It was like hundreds of acres or something. We got our porch sitting out there facing the sunrise. I had my coffee every morning and my Bible. Finally retired from, I think he was in oil or something before. Finally retired from all his work and he's going to sit out there and coast into the sunset, right? Until he dies. <laughs> that was the plan. And he's sitting out there on his porch one day and his wife's in the kitchen and uh, he reads the Great Commission. And it says, go make disciples. And he stopped and he finally let all the pretense fall down. And he said, I, I'm not making any disciples. I mean, just really think about it. Is there, is there one person, even one person in my life, who I am discipling? And he called his wife, who was in the kitchen, and he said, Sweetie! She was like, yeah. He was like, do, you, do you have any disciples? <laughs> And she said, well, um, I mean, the, the group of us girls at the church who are all Christians, we meet together for, like, women's brunch, but uh, not really. And he said, okay. So you know what they did? They sold their ranch. They sold the 100 acres. They sold it all. They moved to a college town because there's going to be people they need to disciple. There's no people when there's 100 acres between you and nobody. <laughs> they moved to the college town, and they, he said he started making disciples. And then he looked at all of us in the audience and he said, go make disciples. <laughs> and he sat down. And I just was, I was blown away. Because if I, if I was like, oh my God, he's right. I'm not making any disciples. And then it starts popping out at you where you realize Apostle Paul, he gets, he gets healed, right? His eyes, they, um, is it Ananias who comes and lays his hands on him? Heals his eyes. Seven verses later, just seven verses later, the Bible says his disciples, Paul, it says Paul, his disciples let him down through a basket through the town because people were trying to kill him. From the time he's converted to seven verses later, he's already got a bunch of disciples. And it calls them his, his disciples. That's crazy. So everybody look behind you for a second. Look. Is there anybody following you? <laughs> is there anyone following you in your life? <laughs> is there anybody who's looking ahead to you, who you're mentoring, who you're discipling and teaching to obey the teachings of Jesus? Because if nobody's following you, 
there is something wrong with your life. I faced this crisis before going to Japan. Yeah, it was a crisis for me. I was literally like, I could never walk away from God because I know too much. (laughs) Because I know too much, right? I could never walk away. But I felt like, Lord, before I went to Japan, I just don't love people, really. I'm not discipling anybody. I need this to be real. Because I cannot continue to just go through motions. I need this to be real, Lord. And so what happened next is I felt God told me, you should apply. Apply to go to Japan. He didn't say go. He just said apply. And I was like, and I felt like gravity pulling it specifically to this particular ministry, part of the PCA, which is part of the Presbyterian Church in America. I said, Lord, this doesn't make any sense. I'm not Presbyterian, and they're not going to accept me. I'm not even a Calvinist. Like, this is like, they're distinctive. <laughs> Why am I going to apply to go build, plant churches with, with them? This doesn't make any sense. But I felt very strongly God said, I want you to apply with them. I said, this is never going to work. Okay, but okay, I'll, we'll put in the application and mark on the statement of beliefs, all the disagreements, and put it in. Just leave it to God. That week, the same week that I put in the application, my brother, Kristan, finds a letter of a time capsule hidden in a jar in my parents' library behind some books. And he follows this letter. He pulls it out. He's like, hey, Josh, we found this letter. He already read it, and it says some embarrassing things. <laughs> it's my handwriting. And it was written 16 years before. And it says, hey, this is my first girlfriend. And it says all this stuff. <laughs> Whoever finds this note, you know. Uh, yeah, some embarrassing stuff. But it also said... I don't know what I want to be when I grow up, but I know I've always loved Japan. And when I grow up, I'm going to move to Japan and tell people about God. I have no memory writing this, zero memory writing this, zero memory of ever feeling like I wanted to be a missionary or something or go to whatever. I have no memory of thinking of going to Japan. Well, I did always love Japanese culture and watch anime and all this sort of stuff. But what, ask yourself, what are the chances This letter has been hidden there for 16 years. And the week we find it happens to be the week we're praying and asking if God wants us to go to Japan as missionaries. (laughs) What are the odds of this? Right? We found this letter and I was like, oh, (laughs) well, okay. I guess it would almost be sinful not to go now at this point. (laughs) It's, it was just crazy. But you know what the point of that story is? The point is not that you need some incredible, insane experience like that of confirmation to go to Japan. And you know what? At the time, I didn't feel like that's what it was either. I felt like the spiritual meaning of me finding that was not that you need to go. The spiritual meaning when I found that, what the Lord spoke to me and actually healed me and I'm crying about, was that he told me it's not about your motives. Remember? I'm the one who's been working this and putting it in place because I love the people of Japan. He had been going out and preparing and laying groundwork and stuff years and years before. Years before. So my, my particular motives and all that wasn't part of the equation. It's his love for his people. Okay. So we went to Japan. Uh, yeah, uh, it, was in, it was an incredible time. I'll tell you more about it um, in a little bit. But uh, there, doing evangelism, you know, I said you have to do it in the here, whether it's here or there. Well, doing it there was completely easy, more easy. <laughs> because everybody wants, you know, you have the, what we call gaijin superpowers, right? Because if you're gaijin, you're, you're a foreigner. And uh, people want to talk to you. You know, people want to know and practice English with you and stuff. They're just inherently curious, at least younger people. When we were in China, also, we would pass out Bibles sometimes, even though we weren't supposed to be passing out Bibles. Uh, and somebody would see us, and then we'd say, well, do you want one too? At the small, and they're like, yes. And then a literal crowd of maybe 30 people, like about as much people in this room, crowded around us, wanting us to give them Bibles in the small. They're literally 
taking the Bibles from us. But that's incredible, right? Um, what about America? Is it like that here? What, are you guys experiencing this? Do you go to the mall and a crowd literally starts forming around you wanting you to give them Bibles? It's a little different, right? Right, it feels a little different. Evangelism feels weird. It feels a little bit burdensome. Doesn't it feel a little bit like you're selling something? It feels like you're, it feels forced. Or it could feel awkward, right? Uh, or maybe it feels like conflict. Or it feels like debate. Like I have to argue with something. Because our culture is so polarized now at this point, right? Or evangelism feels like maybe I'm going to look like a weirdo or something. I'm going to be associated with a bunch of negative stereotypes that I don't want really to be associated with me. Like people are going to think I'm, I'm like going door to door like uh, Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or I'm like those guys who are carrying the signs out there that says adultery is sin and you're going to hell. And, so, and they just all that judgment, all those images, all that stuff. You feel like if you say anything that, that somehow those people are going to think that about you. And you're like, oh, that's not me. I don't feel that way. So don't think about that way at me. So I just won't say anything. Or maybe we have unrealistic expectations. Or we feel like I'm supposed to, some, for some reason in evangelism, I'm supposed to get somebody to a crisis decision point at the end of one conversation. <laughs> right? Where we just have an unrealistic expectation as if we got to drag someone all the way to the foot of the cross and to say like a prayer or whatever uh, in a 20-minute conversation. That just feels like it's just not going to happen. So what do we do? Don't say anything. What about you? Uh, let's have a moment where everybody could share if you like to. What are some of your reservations other than the ones I've, I've shared? What are the things that you've felt that have inhibited you from just sharing or speaking your faith? Sometimes for me, it's like um, I don't want to uh, put God, blame, have someone blame God on my actions. Because I'm, I'm a Christian, well, I <coughs> expect certain things. So that's probably in some situations. They're watching you now. Yeah, yeah, they really do. Yeah. Yeah. What else? I think for, for me, it's uh, the potential of losing a relationship. Mm. You know, so long as I'm in the closet, um, people give you the benefit of the doubt, and they just assume that whatever they think, you think a lot of times. And uh, as soon as, as soon as you know, I, I, t I turn that corner. Of course, for me, it happens a lot faster because, like, a lot of times people say, "Well, what do you do for a living?" It's like, okay. Uh, but you know, uh, it, 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 that polarization is just so there for people that there's no like space to like work. It's just like, okay, so either you like Christianity or you don't, because I just told you I'm a pastor. So. Um, uh, but there, there is that fear of like, okay, this is going to immediately change the relationship, like kick it into this other realm, which is either going to be good or bad, but I'm losing all maneuverability here mm -hmm. <laughs> at the moment yeah. uh, they're aware. So. Totally get that. Sure. I think one for me is um, uh, people have so many misconceptions. People in the world have so many misconceptions about Christianity and they associate it with so many different things that I don't want to be associated with. So I feel like if I tell them I'm a Christian right off the bat, they're going to just immediately assume that I have certain political views that I don't have, that I have certain you know, views on different things that I don't even have. I feel like they're going to make so many assumptions about me that are not even true because people have so many misconceptions about what Christianity is, what it's about. And I don't want to be labeled a bunch of things that are not even accurate. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it doesn't feel good, does it? Yeah, yeah. So I feel like I'm going to be judged. I feel like I'm going to be uh, judged uh, wrongly, um, yeah. just because people's misconceptions, people's you know prejudices about Christianity, mm -hmm. which is partly the Christians' fault because we have not done a great job representing ourselves to the world collectively. You know, like. And I guess that all goes back to evangelism. Like if we, maybe if we, if we shared our faith accurately, we wouldn't have all these misconceptions, maybe, you know. There's one. Yeah, I was just saying that, similar to what you said at the very beginning, being a Christian has such negative connotations now. We've watered down 
what it is to be a Christian. We can accept everybody in that, but once you make a statement like Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, I was, you're a fundamental Christian, and you're, you're, you're so narrow-minded you don't understand everybody. So they have that, you know, they shut you down because of that kind of thing. Yeah, nobody wants to be guilty by association, right? Yeah. One more? Yeah. Uh, that I won't know the answers to their questions. Yes. That's huge. Yeah, you feel like, what if they're going to get in some sort of debate, they're going to bring up something, I won't know how to respond. Um, yeah, so that's actually going to be one of our last points today. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, so, I mean, we could keep going, right? I'm sure every single one of us could go through <laughs> and give some reason for the feelings, right? Whether it's embarrassment, fear of persecution, or sometimes, I'll be honest, in my own case, just plain cowardice. I'm just being a coward, right? Don't want to say that I'm ashamed of Christ or that I love these people. You know, I love myself and my own sense of comfort more than I actually love this person. I don't want to think that or say that, but I think in my own case, I think that has been true sometimes. I think it has. It's awful. Yeah, but what if I told you that maybe evangelism feels this way because of a set of ways that it has been done in the past that maybe weren't so effective and gave it a bad rap. Maybe evangelism feels this way because of a set of false beliefs we have about what it is and what it looks like. And maybe when we get in a clear and a beautiful picture of what it is, those sort of reservations will be burned away in the light of the sun and will be replaced with joy. An actual, not just feeling a burden, like something I gotta, uh, gotta do, but something that feels joyous and wonderful to do. Would you like that? Yes. Of course! Yes! Yes, we want that. Well, let me tell you a story. A tale of two witnesses. I'll tell you a story of myself, who I was evangelized by. <laughs> um, and in both cases, I was already a Christian. <laughs> um, in the first case, I was on UCLA campus. Uh, because my wife was there in a PhD program, and I was going to Fuller at the time, but we found out that we didn't see each other from 7 a.m. at night till like 8 p.m. at night a lot of the time. So what I do is I would, on days I didn't have a class, I would go with her, and so we can at least drive in the car together and I could study some on campus. Um, so I'm sitting there studying. I'm actually preparing a sermon <laughs> for my preaching class. And, uh, you know, in the library, or I don't remember, actually, I think it was outside of the front of the library there. And uh, this young man comes up to me, and he asked me, like, hey, you know, do you mind if I share with you something? And I was like, okay, that's a little weird. Like, people in my normal life don't just come up to me and ask me if they can share something, but, uh, but I'm very friendly, and I'm like, yeah, what is it? And he goes, I just wanted to show you this, you know, booklet. And he pulls out the... Four spiritual laws. Who's seen it? The four spiritual laws, right? And he proceeded to tell me, he just kind of like launched into a spiel about how um, there's the chasm between me and God and my sin has separated it, but Jesus comes and fills it so I can walk across. And, and he just launches into like an evangelism spiel and I'm just, I haven't got a word out. <laughs> I haven't said anything. He didn't ask me who I was. He didn't ask me my name. He didn't ask me uh, what I was doing. He might have been interested to know I was preparing a sermon. <laughs> uh, uh, none of that. He just jumped into his spiel, went after it, and then asked me, now would you like to pray to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior right now? And I was like, well, uh, well so the first time I get to speak, I was like, well, um, no, that's okay. I, 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 and, and he jumped in and said, well, you don't know. You know, you could die tonight. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, well, yeah, but I, and he said, you, you don't know. And he, he, he again, we need, and he starts pressing harder. He starts pressing me, pressing me harder. So I finally, just to the point, I was like, okay, man, I'll say the prayer. <laughs> so you know what I did? I said the prayer. I, I received the Lord Jesus Christ that day again. <laughs> and he was happy and satisfied and was like, thank you. It was great. This is so great to meet you. And at this point, like, yeah, it was great. And, uh, he was, and, he, and he went on. 
And he probably told the story that night about the glorious salvation that occurred on the campus. <laughs> um, but it felt really gross afterwards. I felt a little like unseen. I felt unheard. I felt just kind of used. I felt it was forced. I felt like he didn't know me. And this guy didn't care anything about me at all. He just wanted to jump in through his spiel and get through it. And he didn't see me as a, as, a, as a person. He just saw me as a means to this end that he's trying to do. And honestly, it felt a little bit like, the, and I can't speak to his motivations because I don't know his heart, but it felt more like he was speaking out of guilt assuasion. <laughs> like he was really speaking so that he wouldn't feel guilty anymore about not evangelizing rather than speaking because he loved me. That's the first story. Let me tell you a second story about a time I was witness to. <laughs> Again, I'm already a Christian. Uh, I'm at a conference, um, actually another conference in Seattle. This was not a Christian conference. And I am at a time in my life where I'm seriously, well, it was one of the lowest times of my entire life where I'm dealing with anxiety, disorder stuff. I'm dealing with panic attacks every single day. Some of you have known the horror and the terror of this. I'm in a bad spot. I feel awful. <laughs> like, it's, I'm, I'm having a very hard time in my life, and I'm going up to this conference in Seattle, and I'm sitting there already feeling anxious and feeling bad, and then I see this guy. His name is Aaron Wong. And Aaron sees me. He sees me. And he comes, and he sits with me at the table, and he offers me the greatest gift that you can offer another person, his presence. He's present with me. And he asked me genuine questions about me. <laughs> and I could tell this person actually cares. He's not fluffing me up or, you know, this isn't a pretend bait and switch. He actually cared about what my <laughs> answers were. And he heard all about my background and heard about what I was doing. And he's my age. Actually, he's like a year younger than me. He's a super interesting guy, by the way. He grew up in China, communist China. They fled out to New Zealand. So he has this Kiwi New Zealand accent. Uh, but now he's like uber-American guy. <laughs> and I just felt a sense as I'm talking with this man, you know how you can just discern and know this person is filled with the Holy Spirit. I know this person is filled with, with the Holy Spirit and he's a Christian. I just know it. There's a light in his eyes. You can see. And so I felt God calling on me and tugging on me. I felt inside, you should ask him to pray for you. Look, you're suffering. You're at a very low point, right? Ask, ask Aaron to pray for you. And I chickened out. I did the coward thing. I didn't ask him. I was like, that's, that's weird. No, Lord. What? No. Where did, this isn't a Christian conference. I don't know this guy other than like the 15-minute, 10-minute conversation we had. Just ask a random stranger to pray for me who we haven't established I'm even Christian yet. I, I'm not going to do it. I just didn't do it. Went to my bed that night. Went to sleep. Still suffering with anxiety stuff. And the next morning, we went out. Uh, at the, at, there was a breakfast bit at the, at the hotel. And I saw Aaron Wong. And you know what he did? First thing he walked to me, first thing I came down, he walked this morning and he said, Hey, Josh, I just felt like last night I was supposed to pray for you. <laughs> so I called my sister. We were praying for you. We actually even wrote down some words of prophecy that we have here for you. <laughs> and it said things about that, like, there's no way somebody who did not know me could say these specific things. Incredible. And I was just immediately bursting into tears, <laughs> weeping. Like, God, you saw me. And you sent this man to come and to help me. And he cared. And he prayed for me. And he loved me. And it turned out, even though we met in Seattle, turns out we lived five minutes from each other in L.A. <laughs> and we became like best friends for the next you know, three years that I'm in L.A. <laughs> and God sent me Aaron to literally, it was the darkest, lowest point in my life to be a beacon of Christian hope and love and light. And he carried me up and out and through. In a lot of ways, he discipled me. Now let me ask you a question. If you're going to be witnessed by somebody, which one of those two stories do you want to be witnessed by? <laughs> yeah. Uh, let me ask you something. Does that feel like an awful, disgusting burden? Or does that feel beautiful? and sweet and precious.
I desperately needed that. And all the unbelievers in your life and the people that you know out on the street, they are suffering. They are suffering without the Lord. They are in darkness. They are in pain. They are hurting. They are lost. They are blind. They are not enjoying an awesome, great life of sin or something. They're suffering. And when you take the moment to be present and available and have intentionality in your interaction and also opening to the power of the Spirit, right? To be able to get discernment, those words of knowledge, even prophecy. For him to be able to come and know that he was supposed to pray for me. That's insane, right? He was, yeah, so let's contrast these two, right? The first guy didn't see me as a person at all. Aaron very much saw me as a person. The first guy was concerned with his method, a canned sort of presentation. Aaron was filled with the spirit and going with whatever particular the individual case required. The first guy, uh, his motivation seemed to be out of, it seemed like guilt assuasion for himself. Not motivations out of love for me, but Aaron's motivations was just only walking in love with his father and bringing that love out into the world of the sphere of wherever he is. Guys, ladies and gentlemen, that is evangelism. Well, that's it for this episode. Stay tuned for next time when we'll get into part two of announcing the Kingdom Evangelism class. As for right now, I wanted to read out a comment from the last episode, episode 314, Adopting with Bethany Christian Services, that Jonathan Richardson wrote. He said, I listened to the Bethany Christian Services podcast, and quite frankly, I was very shocked and saddened. I googled orphans and found this statistic. Quote, most people are shocked to discover that there are 153 million orphans worldwide. According to UNICEF, if orphans were a country of their own, the population would rank ninth in the world ahead of Russia, end quote. Given these statistics, and considering the conversation you had with Renee, where the level of selection is more like a very sophisticated dating service, where even the history of cancer in the family of the mother giving up her child is evaluated by the adopting parents, or where the mother giving up her child for adoption considers if an older brother is going to be available for the new adopted child, etc., etc., I can't help but think something is seriously wrong. Let me just pause right here and interject. Jonathan, you may have misheard what I said there, or maybe I misspoke, but uh, the, the person in the driver's seat in the adoption world is the the mother who is giving up the child for adoption. She is the one who picks the family. And at least in this country, there are way more people signed up to adopt than there, there are children available. So even though, even though this is a worldwide stat, uh, 153 million uh, orphans, I think uh, as far as the United States goes and as far as this particular local branch that I visited, she said she has 50 different books of willing adopting parents that she's going to uh, select from to show to a mother who is looking for a suitable home for their chi- for her child. So uh, I, I think maybe something got lost in communication here, but it's actually the opposite problem as what you're describing here. It's not that uh, there are so many people that wish they could adopt, but you know they're being picky about you know, if the child has any medical conditions. In fact, it's actually the opposite. Bethany Christian Services has heroic Christian families that are signed up to take children that are, that are going to die within a year, that are going to be born with Down syndrome, that are going to be born with cleft lip or cleft palate, that are going to be born blind or deaf or uh, missing a limb. These are all specific examples that I've talked to Bethany Christian Services about, and they are 100% committed, and when that child is born, that child will be adopted and loved uh, in, a, in a Christian home by people that, are, that feel that this is their calling. This is what God wants them to do in, in our age. So I just want to push back a little bit against what you were saying there, but, uh, but continuing on, he writes, at the risk of sounding very harsh, given the inordinate number of children needing placement services, according to UNICEF, I think the services of a high-end adoption center, such as Bethany Christian Services, are absolutely ridiculous. 
and that their prime market must be with the very exclusively rich and famous. This model where the adopting parents can expect to pay $35,000 for an international adoption and almost just as much for a local or domestic at $30,000 because, as Renee explained, she follows a child until he or she is 18 years old is completely unnecessary and a waste of time, money, and other valuable resources. I realize that to some, I'm, I am sounding very judgmental, and I doubt you will post my comment, <laughs> which is fine. But honestly, I had to stop listening to this podcast about three quarters through because I was finding myself getting very angry by what I was hearing. Uh, let me pause this comment again here and make a couple of remarks I wish I could have taken you with me uh, to see the local branch I was at. This is not at all a high-end kind of operation. The The place is in a uh, kind of a rundown strip mall, and it's on the second floor, and it doesn't have a fancy sign, and you come in, and it is they don't, do not have plush furniture. The carpets are kind of old, and the ceiling's a bit dingy. And the furniture is, you know, ha- has every appearance of being either old or secondhand. Uh, the, 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 there's only one lady working there, and she's managing, you know, a, a huge, huge area of New York State. Um, th- th- there's nothing high-end about this place. There's no, there was no secretary. Uh, there was no coffee machine that I even saw. I mean, this is not like going to one of these... Uh, lawyer offices where you've got all these receptionist types and, you know, a big glass fancy building and you're wined and dined while you're sitting there waiting. There's nothing like that. Okay. So this is definitely not a high end place. These are, these are grassroots people that feel called to do this, to do this work. Now, as far as your point about how the, uh, Renee follows a child until that child is 18 years old, this is actually a function of once again, of the parent, the bio, the biological parent's choice. And there are two kinds of adoptions. There are open adoptions and closed adoptions. In the case of a closed adoption, which is much more, much rarer than an open adoption, there wouldn't be any kind of need for Renee to keep tabs for the, for the rest of the, the time because what she's really doing is handling the, the meetup as a mediator, essentially, between the birth parents and the adoptive parents. And this is really a, just a, a function of the open adoption process, which is j- typically preferred by a lot of people. And from what I gather, I mean, this is obviously not my field, but from what I gather, emotions do run high in these kinds of meetings. And there is a need to have another person there, at least early on. She did mention, though, that a lot of times people, if they get along with each other, they just exchange phone numbers, and then, you know, the biological parents can come over to the adoptive parents' house and, you know, this kind of thing. But I imagine that part of this is to avoid kidnapping. A biological parent who has signed over her child, you know, in a, in a legal manner to these other people and then goes and visits and has a change of heart maybe and now wants to take that that baby or that young child uh, you know i'm sure that there's a lot of regret and like i said before emotion that goes into this that explains why renee oftentimes is involved in this role furthermore a lot of times she is she she plays the role of a social worker especially for low income people who are in serious need but, but that all takes money. If she's paying for somebody's rent, where's that money going to come from? I'm telling you, these people, it's not like this agency has tons of cash lying around and they're in a fancy building. So that, that money is going to have to come from the adopting parent. And then the other factor to, uh, to bring in here, Jonathan, just uh, by way of a response here, is that uh, you know this is, this, a lot of this is just the nature of how New York State requires so many attorneys she mentioned that the baby gets an attorney, that Bethany gets an attorney, that the adopting uh, couple gets an attorney, and that the birth parent gets an attorney. Who pays for all the attorneys? Well, once again, it's the adopting parents who have to foot the bill for everything because they're the ones that are seeking to adopt a child. And you're right, the system is broken. 
and it shouldn't it shouldn't be this expensive. And I'm sure there are other ways of doing this that aren't so expensive. I I don't really know what they are, but this is just the way it is uh, for, for this for this adopting agency. Um, Jonathan goes on. Don't get me wrong. I am totally for safe adoptions and ensuring that the adopting parents have solid morals and an upright character. Perhaps there was a time when very stringent adoption screening processes were necessary, like in the 1800s when some might be motivated to adopt simply for selfish or abusive reasons, where another child only meant another farm laborer. Or in the early 1900s when there were no child labor laws. But in this day and age where every child, at least in the U.S., is required by law to attend school, where any child abuse would be most likely spotted and reported by teachers, an elaborate or severe screening process seems totally unnecessary and a waste of resources and money. How many hardworking middle-class parents with a child or two, probably the best environment to place a child who would consider adopting a child can afford to pay the ridiculous price of $30,000? I'm not sure what I personally can do to have a meaningful impact to change what appears to be a system that works against getting as many needy and perhaps oppressed children adopted as possible. If anyone is familiar with what can be done, please speak up. Well, thanks, Jonathan, for writing in. I definitely can sympathize and agree with your sentiment that, you know, there, there's just a lot of barriers. And that's that's what really came out when I was asking and interviewing that, you know, they're, 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 the price was so high. And I, I you probably heard me laugh. I would encourage you, however, to listen to the last 25% or so, wherever you left off, of the podcast, because we do cover some additional subjects that might be of interest if you're looking to to get involved in this. Uh, I would love to hear from anyone out there of my listeners who has adopted through Bethany Christian Services, fostered through Bethany Christian Services, or is involved with Bethany Christian Services, because it would be great to hear your experience. And from what I know, people do have good experiences with them, the $30,000 price tag notwithstanding. So lots to think about there. And also, if those of you who know anything about other adoption agencies that maybe do have a lower cost, especially for international adoptions, my, my impression of the adoption industry in the United States is that the demand is much higher than the supply of adoptable children. Maybe I'm wrong about that, so I, I would love to to be corrected if if there's anyone out there that is uh, that that has better information on this subject. Thanks everybody for tuning in. Stay tuned next week for part two of our announcing the kingdom evangelism class with Josh Anderson. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.